Hello, I'm Brittany Campbell-Turner, and this is The Constructor Podcast, session number 29. Hello, and welcome to, or welcome back to this episode of Constructor, the best way to build it. This episode features Renee Chang, who is a professor and associate dean at the University of Minnesota. If you listen to the most recent podcast, you listened to the first half of our interview, which if you listen to it, you know how good it is, and you're dying to hear the rest. (laughs) Um, She is a graduate of Harvard. She's a registered architect and has stayed her course in academia. She's recognized for her teaching excellence with numerous teaching awards and appears on national lists of influential educators. So this is part two. In the first part, I covered who is Renee Chang and a bit of her journey, the fantastic approach to conducting the research. In this part, part two, we cover the takeaways, key takeaways from the success and high performance projects, building design and project delivery in the federal sector. That was one of the research papers that we started to discuss in the first half. We're going to talk about the key takeaways. We'll also dive into the second research paper, Motivation and Means, How and Why IPD and Lean Lead to Success. And we talk about the myth busters. So I would like to note that these research reports are not just research white papers that you pick up and read and then put back down. During the interview, actually, Renee is literally scrolling in and out of the sections that she otherwise is seamlessly referencing. But that's what you'll be able to do on your next project. You can reference the part that are the relevant to you and your project. So with that, let us get into the second half of the interview with Renee Chang. All right, so so let's dig in to your top findings here for for this particular report. Um, what would you what would you say are the biggest things that you've identified um, for these projects? Yeah. So there's findings that are I would actually sort of split them up. So we've got findings that were really helpful to GSA. And then we were, there were findings that I think are helpful industry-wide. So if we start with those that are industry-wide, um, what we definitely found was that when you're dealing with high-performing buildings, you need to um, think about what happens when they're operating. Because so many of your, um, and these were all also chosen, I should say, that there is some aspect of performance-based contracting in all of these. So at some point, the team's, were held accountable or they had some fee attached to the actual building performance um, that was going to be um, demonstrated by the building after it was completed. So that Mm -hmm. was something that I think um, GSA is really putting forward as a a way to move move, um, the whole industry forward. And I think it's something, I know that there's caution around that because how do you know what's going to happen when the building's operating a year after you leave it as a designer or as a contractor or as a sub, but I actually think it's a really good thing for the industry that we should feel... You give the opportunity. Yeah, we should feel confident. Yeah, you give that opportunity. Yeah. And you you need to put some skin in the game. Yeah, absolutely. You know, why not? Yeah, so it it helps to um, motivate 
and mm-hmm. also put some real consequences to things. And we should feel confident enough to say that we can predict what things are going to um, perform like. It does, though, and we had talked earlier about the human behavior and how that affects things. You do need to figure out how you communicate to the building users because it's not always, some of these systems are pretty complex and it's not always intuitive to know that if you open a window, you're going to unbalance something, but it's okay to open a window at another time. Or please don't turn off your computer at night because something else is going to be happening. Or, you know, you actually need to not run things at night because we hadn't planned for you to run that at night. So those kinds of things or even, you know, timed plugs and stuff like that um, are part of the process of achieving a high-performing building. Achieving performance-based contracting includes the actual operations of the building. And so that was something I think, um, even though it seems fairly obvious, we found each of these project teams, because it was not originally part of the um, scope of work for um, Aspinall and Edith Green, they found a way to add it. It was part of the original scope in Federal Center South, but they found a way to manage it. So I think all of these teams did a different um, take on that. And we, we call it, most of them called it some form of verification. So that was the um, category that we used there. So if you look at the verification category, you see how they all um, worked through that. Um, the other kind of key takeaway, I would say, is that just in a broad sense, high-performance goals can align a team in a way that goes way beyond the actual EUI or what is the, you know, the R value of this wall. Um, when you look at what happens when the team... Um, you know, I talked about Aspinall having that net zero. That was actually a goal that the design build team proposed. Um, that was Beck Group and WRL. It wasn't part of the original RFP, but they responded to the RFP by saying, we think this building could be net zero. And so the whole team was so committed to that, that when the historic preservation group said, you know, the solar array is becoming intrusive, we would like you to cut it back they all just jumped in and said, okay, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to keep our net zero. We're going to uh, abide by the preservation guidelines. And this is how we're going to do it. And they had to study a wide range of solutions. And they ended up implementing also several. It was very multi-pronged in how they did it. And so that was not just about net zero and was not just about our values and um, energy calculations. That was about the team sharing a goal and being really motivated and trusting each other and respecting each other's capacity to um, offer new ideas or even offer ideas in an area that seemed to be your area. Um, but, you know, have you thought about this? And people really responded in a way that was, um, you know, really heartening to see that kind of team first, project first behavior that I think is, um, comes when you have larger aspirational goals than just meeting budget and schedule. So I would say, in this case, high-performance goals obviously are good in and of themselves, but they're also proxy for just getting the team inspired, making the team feel challenged, um, setting forward some stretch goals. Then the GSA-specific takeaways, I think, were um, things like, small things like design-build contracts um, are not completely common in all the regions of GSA. And they have also a peer review process, which is common and is really helpful. But the peer review process um, has a certain timing. They sort of say at 15% and 50%, 75%. Well, the 15% peer review for the GSA on a design-build project comes too late. 
because the design build team has already worked through the scheme and they've already gotten through even kind of early stage design development. So they actually need their peer review earlier. And so in all these projects, they requested that the peer review be moved up so that they were able to make bigger decisions on like, let's relocate the HVAC system. Let's look at this other strategy, which were really large changes that if they had waited till the what was supposedly 15%, um, it would have been too late to make the changes. So that was just kind of a, you know, pointing out to the GSA that your peer review process is great, um, but the time periods that you establish them might need to be different for a design build team. Um, and then, you know, other, other changes that they were um, aware of that we made recommendations to them. But the best outcome, I think, that came out of the GSA was that they realized through looking at these cases, two being design build and one being CMC, that they didn't have a really clear and um, consistent way of deciding the project delivery method for their projects. They tended to go with what the project manager wanted or what the region was comfortable doing or what people had done most recently. So that might be, you know, and there's only a couple versions that they allow. So it would be design bid build being the most common, design build being a little less common, design build bridging, which is kind of a hybrid where you, you know, have different um, different teams, but you're still using a design build process. And then the CMC being the least common. Um, and they looked at why are we always going to design bid build when our own data is showing us that the least likely to be um, to be contain the schedule and contain the budget? Um, when we can see clearly these three projects being highly collaborative, highly successful, none of them are using design bid build. Why are we, you know, why why is that happening that we're choosing design build bid build so frequently? So they asked us then to look at um, to advise them on a project project that they already had going looking at what process do they use to select which contract. And so we ended up getting involved um, really deeply with their policies and processes, which was fascinating, and advising on a simple tool to just kind of help the discussion. Um, and Laura Stagner, who's, um, who we worked with directly at GSA, she was really adamant. It, it, it can't be another set of rules. All right, so one of the really great things that came out of the GSA findings uh, for this uh, research effort was looking at the um, project delivery method and how they even made that decision of whether to go with design bid build, design build, uh, design build bridging, or CMC. And so we got really deeply involved with their policies and processes and advised a group that was already a working group on how to um, help those discussions have a consistency and a documentation. Um, so Laura Stagner, who we were working with at the Public Building Services, was clear she didn't want a new policy or a new set of rules. She just wanted something that would assist the teams in having the conversations, making sure that they thought through all the benefits and drawbacks of the different project delivery contract types and what would best support their teams and their particular needs for that particular project. So we developed a tool for them that um, I think I can send you a kind of information sheet on it because most of it is internal to the GSA, so it's not really accessible to people. Sure. Um, but that, that was really the really helpful. Yeah, and that was really the huge takeaway for GSA is um, you know, why why are we making how are we making decisions around which project um, to use which contract types? Um, because the collaboration seems to be better supported by certain types 
like Design Build and CMC. So why, you know, why are we not using it more often? Is it because of the process that we use to even select the contract type? So that was really great to be involved at that level at that early stage of the process. And that, that's been launched, so they're, they're already starting to use it for their um, next set of projects. Do you have any insight, Renee, on, on why they selected these particular projects to be part of this research that you conducted? Um, I think when we've talked to them about it, and there's, so now part of what we're doing for our current research with them are two more projects that were done a little bit later, but have a lot of the same hallmarks, um, where the, within the different, and they, you know, trying to get a little bit of geographic diversity, because as you might know, GSA does um, a lot of things in a decentralized way, so each region kind of has its own autonomy um, but so they wanted a little bit of um, geographic diversity, even though most of these are a little bit more West oriented. Um, and they were ones that I think all tried to use some pretty innovative building technologies. And they far exceeded the minimum performance requirements that were in place for all of the era projects that were all meant to kind of increase the high performance level for all federal buildings. So I think they were pretty well known. I'm pretty sure there were a couple of others that they could have chosen. Um, and I know in our current one, they, they kind of talked us through a couple that they were thinking about. Um, this particular set, I think they also liked the idea that one was a historic preservation and small. The other was a complete renovation and sort of medium size. And the other was fairly large and new construction. So I think that kind of diversity was what they were looking for as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Very cool. I, I do want to ask you this question about Swift Trust, just because we touched on that before. Do you mind just kind of giving us a, a sense of uh, who, who, which, which project utilized that? <clears throat> and then how was that understood um, here in, in this instance? Right. So we, um, in our literature review, we talked about um, Swift Trust as something that we found in all of these teams. And actually, I would say that, you know, this is something that we wrote about it in this particular report, but it's um, common to, you know, common to a lot of um, teams that you see working at a really high level. So it comes from the work um, of Meyerson, uh, Reek, and Kramer from 1996. And it's a theory about temporary teams where you have groups of people that are coming together. They're not a they're not planning to work together for longer than the duration of whatever it is. So a project. So you find it in like um, film crews and you find it in emergency rooms um, and you can find it in construction. So if you have a team that's temporarily coming together, you know, you, when you have a uh, short time period that you're working together, if you are going to develop trust, it has to be pretty quickly done. Um, if you talk to high-performing teams, a lot of them are like, oh, we've worked together for 20 years, we go way back, we've done lots of projects together, you know, our kids play soccer together, all this kind of great stuff that binds them together. And you can say, okay, that's where their trusting relationship comes from, is just this long period of time. Well, what do you do when you're thrown together for a short period of time, often very intense, where you have to figure out how to work together? And some teams can develop what's called the SWIFT trust. So it's when you have people that are clearly understanding their roles and they're doing what you expect from that um, type of, of uh, role. Um, so if it's on a film crew that they are performing the role of a gaffer the way that other good gaffers have done in the past, 
you tend then to say, okay, I trust them because they seem to be, they know, they seem to know what they're doing. They seem to know what this role is and they perform in that role. And so it tends to be where there's um, distinct and clearly defined roles. What the interesting thing was that we found in construction is that you have um, teams that developed the SWIFT trust because they worked in their defined roles but then they developed so much trust that then they allowed for role blurring. So yes. because okay. these teams were starting with, say, a design build where they had to quickly work together, but then the sort of crisis of saying we need to reduce the solar panel or whatever it was that would happen early, like Federal Center South would be the brownfield issues, um, they would then say, you know, I didn't mind that the electrician was giving me um, mechanical engineering suggestions or say, have you thought of this? Because I, you know, understood he knew his role as a, as an electrician and he wasn't stepping out of that role, but he was just offering me new ways to think about things. So swift trust doesn't necessarily mean that you are siloed and locked in, locking into particular ways of working. Um, but it, you know, tends to happen where you've got pretty strong cultural expectations of what, um, what good behavior is. So it's interesting that construction industry, we know what good behavior is. We don't always exhibit it, but we know, and we can recognize, um, you know, what we sometimes call these a team behaviors or an a team player. Um, and I personally don't think that it's inherently you are either a team or you're not. I think that you can develop that and support it. But I, I do think we recognize when we find someone who's like that right off the bat and we do tend to trust them and work with them in a way as if you believe that they're going to do what they say because you've seen um, other signs of their competency. Well, that actually reminds me of an interesting study I read about some time ago about um, children in a classroom, and and you probably are are familiar with this uh, example here, but children in a classroom. Actually, there were two sets of, of students um, studied here. There was a there was a teacher who decided to um, pretty much talk to the students in a way where they didn't expect them to learn. Right? You guys aren't going to learn this anyway. Like they would say very negative things to the students, and they did not perform well. The on the alternative side, there was a a teacher who um, spoke to to same you know. It, they came from the same, same material, group, yeah. right? They same material, but they said, "You guys are going to get this. All of you are really smart. All of you guys are capable of understanding this process." And all of them performed better. Same mm-hmm. material, same information was shared as far as the the academic side of things, but <laughs> the the sort of uh, trust that was exemplified from that professor or teacher or whatever it made such an impact on how well the students performed or how, how, how well they didn't perform. Um, and I think that that kind of parallels here with this swift trust uh, methodology. I, yeah, I mean, somewhat, yes, and somewhat that would be more the expectations, right? So setting clear expectations is not always the same as saying, I trust that you can do this. Because in the cases of these building projects, um, you can set the expectations, um, but if someone is not meeting those expectations, you are, it's not that you don't trust them or their capacity. You're just trying to figure out what's going on. 
Mm. And it could be that they overcommitted or they've got something else going on in their company or there have been leadership changes or something like that. So it is, um, I think it, the, the other side to, to the building construction um, version of Swift Trust is accountability, right? Yes. Which in the end, the, the story that you told about the students, in the end, the accountability was how they performed on the test. Um, but it wasn't in the same way of sort of saying, you're meeting these milestones and I'm holding you accountable for what I expected you to be able to do um, at each stage of it. So maybe slightly different. You know. it, it's slightly different because yeah. it's, a, it's a long-term collaboration that needs to take place. I mean, it's, it, it is different. I'm kind of taking a siloed approach to, to looking at it with that, uh, with that study there. Uh, no, but I understand. I, hmm. Yeah, I and also teachers, yeah, the concept I think is definitely true about the positive expectations versus negative expectations. I think in the example you chose just because it's teacher-student versus peers, Yes. That are each having to do a part in a in a team is just a little different. Very true, very true. Because it, it goes both ways when you're in a team. It's not just mm-hmm. one direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. No, I loving your feedback thus far uh, from this particular study. Um, how did this research um, did it have any correlation to the IPD uh, lean research? Um, the IPDA and LCI have Yeah, actually lots of, there's lots of parallels because anytime you're dealing with collaboration, um, the, the thing that was great about being able to then switch to the um, motivation and means report was that these projects that we were studying for the GSA, they were not really true IPD. You know, they were as collaborative as they could be. And they did have the shared performance contracting, which did, in some cases, have a kind of risk-reward aspect to things. Um, But the motivation and means projects all had um, what you might call pure multi-party, and we made it a criteria of selection that they be more than four parties, so beyond the owner, contractor, architect. Um, And we had some that were up to, I think, 22 parties um, signing. So Mm -hmm. that was a great complement to this one where we were looking at these collaborative um, practices and the kind of issues of trust um, that developed in these teams that we could recognize in the teams. But then when you go to IPD contracts, and you know, I think some of the criticism of IPD contracts in the past has been, how do you contractually um, bind people to be trusting? And how do you contractually govern behavior? Um, and so that was definitely a question that we had in our minds as well, as clearly the IPD projects up until now have been quite um, consistently better on time, better on budget, better on quality, better on satisfaction. So we weren't trying to reprove that. But what we were trying to look at is how are they doing this? How are they getting to the point where they're being so successful? And we had this background of knowing from these GSA cases that didn't use contracts that you can certainly get the collaboration without an IPD contract. So then what is the role of the IPD contract? So we were also really uh, fortunate to, to find the coincidence of both IPDA and LCI both being interested in doing some research um, around the same time. And when we introduced the idea that they would uh, co-sponsor something, they both were really positive. And so that's for us was perfect because we were looking um, you know, the, 
the findings of that one was really that IPD provides a really strong motivation for teams to work together, um, not just because they're contractually supposed to, but also because their um, risk-reward pool is there that is only shared if they all do well. But then Lean provides the means to collaborate, because you can say you want to collaborate and at a very high level um, be feel-good, and there are a lot of um, teams that do this through charters or things that aren't IPD agreements. Um, But then when you come down to what does collaboration actually mean on a day-to-day basis or on a specific sub-area basis. If you have lean tools, uh, particularly things like Last Planner System, there's a lot of accountability in there. There's a lot of measurement, a lot of transparency about where are you. Um, and that the team is collectively managing the budget because they're collectively responsible for their risk-reward pool. There's all these mechanisms that um, the contract provides the motivation but then target value design or uh, choosing by advantages or the um, last, all the pieces that are part of the last planner system really reinforce a mechanism for, for doing that. So that was a great segue for us is to see these GSA projects, which had a lot of collaboration and seeing the same level of collaboration, but understanding differently um, and having the teams be much more overt about saying, well, we were you know, these were the goals and we knew we needed to collaborate. Um, Whereas I think from the GSA ones, they were more focused on these goals of high performance and the Recovery Act, getting America back to work type things. And they knew they collaboration was a good way to do it, but that uh, it wasn't as overtly a top level goal as it was for the teams that we talked to that were part of the um, motivation and means study. All right. Well, do you mind if we just kind of take a quick step back and, and get a broad landscape of what the, the case studies were um, sure. that were researched for the motivation and means IPD? Like, uh, what, what industries did they cover? Um, what markets did the projects? So we were very much um, in agreement, all the sponsors and the uh, research team, we were in agreement that we wanted this to be um, for an audience of owners. So we were trying to look at what owners would need to know and where the value was to the owner's business goals in the building projects uh, and their outcomes. So once we settled on that being a clear goal, we also knew we didn't need to repeat a lot of the um, very good research that's already been done on the success of IPD, um, that we really wanted to get into the how and why does IPD succeed. So once we kind of settled some of those um, issues, then we put a call out to identify projects. And um, we had really good response and ended up choosing the 10 that you see in the report. Um, We worked really hard to try to get those that were geographically diverse, um, a wide range of scope, project budget, um, and some that were new construction, some that were more of a renovation or adaptation, Um, and then a large project owners, as well as those that were first-time project owners, and project teams that were really experienced, and project teams that were inexperienced, or project teams that were mixed. So we had a number of factors that we were trying to get diversity. Um, And I think we did pretty well with, um, you know, the kinds of projects that we ended up choosing. And and so we were pleased with the 
variety of, of types. And then it, it kind of makes it potentially even more powerful how uniformly successful they were and how uniformly there was the um, Project First, Team First spirit that we saw uh, very much throughout all of the teams. And many of them used that phrase that I've never been on a team that's been so Project First, Team First oriented. Um, and many of them said, this was the highlight of my career. Um, hmm. This project was one that I would love if I could do another, um, especially for the newer teams saying, you know, we're actively seeking new, um, our next, next IPD experience. So it was striking that for all of our efforts to make it a diverse group, um, there were some pretty, very, very clear results in terms of satisfaction and um, owner satisfaction and the, the ways that all of the team members felt that it was a positive experience. One thing that I loved about this particular piece is that any project type, really, I mean, unless you're going, well, it seemed like there were a few in healthcare, medical office buildings, some workplace office spaces. And like mm-hmm. you said, ranging from different um, different approaches, whether it's new build, renos, you know, things of that nature, um, pricing too. I, I felt like you could identify with one like at least one. Yeah, that's what we wanted. That's what we wanted is that you would be able to look at the at a glance and say, hey, this project's a lot like mine. Yes. You know, and what we wanted and we we almost got, but we were not able to get um, some housing and manufacturing, which would have been great. So, you know, maybe in the next round, if we do another round or something like that, but we would have wanted to get a little bit more. um, We wanted also a public owner would have been great. You know, so we... We could have gotten a little bit more diversity, but yeah, I think we tried to make it that you could look through the, just even the project descriptions and at a glance and say, you know, this is kind of similar to, to our team. And that, right. again, the kind of following through horizontally to see their story or to kind of look through vertically and see how the different uh, different teams handle different aspects of BIM or Lean or different alignments. Yeah, which which again makes it that practical um piece that you can certainly apply to to whatever stage you are in and then additionally you know what's most like those aspects of the projects um that, to yours right mm-hmm. <clears throat> um well similar question as as last time what what would you say your your key takeaways are from this this piece so we um I actually been doing some presentations with the lean construction people and the IPDA people on um, myth busting yes. and the kind of myths that were um, are either just developed in the industry because of some of those early case studies um, and or just things that people tend to think are are true based on their understanding of IPD and lean. So for example, and I won't go through all of them, but for example, a lot of people think, oh well, IPD is really only for large complex healthcare projects in California. And so, you know, it's, we actually found very successful projects that were small. Um, There is some debate about saying, you know, how small is too small? um, Because you do invest a lot of time in team building and developing the contract. Um, But I think that generally there's, there's nothing that we found that says there's a right size for IPD and that there is a too small or too big or a too anything. So I think it definitely can work if people are all willing to do it. Um, another myth that we tend to hear is, 
well, you know, owners benefit more if they go design bid build because they're getting the best market price. Well, we definitely found that that was um, our teams were the owners were seeing enormous value where they were all pretty much on time and on budget. A few of them actually missed a bit, but the owners felt completely satisfied with the performance of the team on time and on budget. Um, But the thing that's a little hidden when you talk about being on time and on budget is that if you set really aggressive budget and time goals and the team meets them, that's great. If you overpad your um, budget and schedule, a team will look like it's meeting it, but they didn't do anything extraordinary. So what we saw were that these teams were meeting really aggressive um, schedule and budget goals, and they were often meeting them while still increasing the scope of the project. So pretty extraordinary results in terms of owner value. Um, So even though people might think, oh, if I go to market, I'm going to get the best value. Well, the teams that really did a careful comparison of what it would have taken to build the project in an open market bid situation found, you know, really significant, like 10, 20% below market um, for sometimes increased scope, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, So another myth that we tend to hear about is like, well, you know, if I do lean, I have to like dive into the whole thing and kind of do everything exactly the way they say it um, in all all the books and I have to get a trainer and everything. And we found, yes, getting facilitation and training is really helpful, but you can do even one piece of it in your own way and make it positive. So if you believe that you need accountability, you can find ways to make your promises clear. You don't have to do the full-blown last planner system, but you might find pull planning is helpful. So, and obviously, the more consistent you are, the more you understand the overall goals, not just the mechanics of it, the more successful you're going to be. But we found some of the inexperienced teams were, um, you know, you really couldn't tell the difference between those in terms of their performance. The inexperienced teams, actually, some of them said that climbing the mountain together or being on the lean journey together was actually the most helpful for them because they really felt like they were moving along as a team. But we also got feedback from teams that were mixed with um, experienced and inexperienced that the inexperienced people learned so much from the experienced ones that they could be mentored that you didn't, um, you know, you saw a lot of positive uh, results from that as well. So the idea that you have to have a certain amount of experience or a certain commitment to lean and IPD, we found also was not true. And then the last myth that I'll mention is the one that I think I I probably um, held myself is that IPD and IPD-ish are really the same. You know, like if you do a a good uh, kind of collaboration charter, you're just as well off as spending the time it takes to develop a full IPD contract. And what we found is not only de- the time developing the IPD contract was really valuable as the first step in team building and developing that foundation of trust and respect and kind of clarifying the goals and expectations, but we also found that the behavior of people that were bound by that contract was noticeably more collaborative and more project first, team first, than those that were on the project, but not part of the signatory pool. So it was, there were some teams that even noticed it kind of felt like you were not chosen for the team if you were on the project, but not in the signatory pool. And that those people would come on time, do their job and leave. Whereas the people that were part of the signatory pool were just, you know, significantly more engaged, more willing to kind of cross, um, 
cross boundaries to share equipment or to, you know, do one, one team, one guy found a way to Velcro a, a pen onto his hard hat because he was always losing a pen in his pouch and he made one for everyone on the team. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> you know, you get, and I'm sure there are other positive stories like that and teams that aren't IPD, but we definitely, when you look at teams that are IPD, you can see the difference in behavior and it's noticeable behavior of who's actually in the signatory pool. Um, and it goes deep, deep down through the superintendents, through the people on, through the, the craft workers. Um, so it's not just the executive level. Um, when you do it right, it's really driven all the way down to the, the people on, um, on the ground. So, you know, those were some of our, our findings were just were, you know, unsurprisingly IPD works with that wasn't really a finding, um, the, the real findings are, you know, there's a lot of perceptions about how and why it works that are not really based in fact. And so when you look at, you know, and this is a, obviously a group of 10 that step forward. Um, so they're potentially, you know, more willing to share. Um, but when you look at them and you see the variations, you see, you know, some of these perceptions of what IPD is good for and how it works are not completely correct. I, I love that you went through the myth busters. Um, I think that a lot of people do have their reservations because they're thinking it's this hurdle they have to sort of jump over or there's a learning curve that you have to climb. And, and you know, people think that it, there well, there is real true reason to hesitate before jumping in. And, and I think it's good to, yes, dig in and understand things well. Uh, but I do, I really like the, the, the one particularly about IPD versus IPD-ish. Um, I, I remember reading in the research that it would take hours upon hours for the team to review the contract together, mm-hmm. literally sit down in a room. Yeah. I don't remember which, it, which case it was. Um, but that process of just kind of hashing through the language and making sure that everybody had clarity around what it meant, bringing in their legal counsel, you know, so that they yeah. had, <laughs> you yeah. know, say and all of that. Um, that in itself, just understanding what the expectations are again, those long-term goals, what are they, you know, just clarifying them and um, starting on that right foot. Yeah. Everybody's starting on that same um, path in the same beat with the same mindset is truly integral. Well, and I think that they found, generally speaking, when we asked them to kind of estimate the return on investment of that time, because it was significant time, um, they all said it was worth it. And because they gained so much time later on with not dealing with problems. So one of the uh, trade partners said, you know, all that time in early planning, we were frustrated at first and like, you know, why are we spending all this time? Um, But in the end, we think it was probably about the same amount of time or maybe less overall that we spent on this project. But the time was spent on um, how we wanted things to go instead of figuring out what to do when things went wrong. So, you know, if you're going to spend X amount of energy on a project, if you can spend it on the positive planning, this is what we want to have happen, strategic level, and less time on the putting out fires level, I think you're going to be more satisfied. The project's going to be better. And, you know, maybe it is the same amount of time. Maybe it's a little bit more. Maybe it's a little bit less if you're more experienced. We're also seeing some of the more serial owners trying to do uh, IPD template contracts 
Um, we a number of our projects uh, in our in this these cases used the consensus docs or modified the consensus docs. Others yep. used um, the uh, custom, but we're now starting to see kind of real hybrids where they're um, custom for that owner based on a version of consensus docs or certain things that they found over time. Um, and then they do a much more abbreviated version of bringing the um, stakeholders on board to explain the contract to them. And there's not so much negotiation, um, but it is this kind of clarity of expectations. So we'll see how those those turn out. Um, we had, the, if you look closely at the two different Sutter projects, one was done um, uh, with the more negotiated line-by-line type thing that was Sunnyvale, whereas Los Gatos was much more of a template. And the team members that were experienced said they didn't really think it was that different, um, those two experiences. But some of the newer team members, um, you know, did have a different experience and we didn't, we couldn't really tell that it made a negative experience, but it was shorter. So, you know, it's not very clear right now exactly how much time are you spending there. We do know that everyone feels that it's worth it in the end, but I'm sure it can feel onerous when you're committing to it. I mean, none of this stuff is easy. You know, doing complex, successful projects is not easy. So you're putting the time and effort somewhere. Yeah. It's all about, is it a value-added activity or is it fixing something? Right. (laughs) No one one likes to fix stuff. It's frustrating and it's, you know, it's always a compromise and it feels like a fire drill and doesn't feel like you're planning and using your time effectively. So I think most people, especially in the construction industry, you know, we, we would rather things are planned and go the way that we expected. You know, we measure twice, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yes, once, yes, yes. <laughs> oh, man. No, this is great. Uh, thank you so much for digging deep into what we can expect from these research studies. And I, I do want to ask you kind of point blank here, uh, just because you've been... Uh, seeing so many different aspects. I mean, from the psychological point of view, team building, um, you've, you've been a practitioner um, from the design side. You, you have so much perspective. Um, but besides digging into these publications, what would you recommend for people who are, well, I mean, of course, doing that too. I, I highly recommend it. Um, but what would you recommend for someone who's wanting to take those first steps, whether they're an owner, architect, GC, trade partner, um, what, so, would, what would you think? Yeah. So I think there's, um, you know, within the building industry, there's, I've been really impressed with the quality of some of the events that have been being held. Um, some of them are through the, the groups that you would expect like Kurt and COA, um, AGC, AIA. Um, but there's also some smaller things that tend to pop up. And so um, some of them are like more the um, LCI communities of practice or more regional type stuff. And so if you find things that um, have these topic areas with um, collaboration or with lean, then, you know, if you look up the people that are giving the the sessions and kind of get a sense of their their background and what they're going to be bringing to it, then, you know, those are, I think, well worth attending in person I know it takes time to get to places, but the thing that I find when when I go present this work in person is that I have a lot of really great conversations afterwards. And so, you know, a lot of the value that you get from attending those types of conferences is not so much the presentation, which is often podcast or webcast simultaneously, but it's in meeting not only the experts that are giving the presentation, 
But the people in the audience are likely very much on some continuum of path that you're on. So you're going to find other owners or contractors or subcontractors or whatever that are also just dipping their toe in or who, um, or you're going to find others that have had one or two projects under their belt, or you're going to find others that are completely, that's all they do. And so that network for you is probably the most helpful thing. And in the end, a lot of this stuff is really cultural. And if we're talking about culture change in the building industry, which I think most people in the building industry would agree that we could use a culture change. You know, I think those statistics around the amount of waste that we have in our system, everyone has experienced that. And so I don't think there's anyone that says, oh, we've got a great culture. We need to preserve it. I think most people are like, you know what? We should be a lot better. We should be less siloed, less blaming, more efficient, more providing value, um, be able to provide a stronger culture that is also more open to women and people of color that would attract that. Um, you know, who wants to work in a dysfunctional culture? So I think if we're talking about culture change, which I really hope is what we're talking about, then the reports that I'm doing are really the kind of how to like, don't get stuck. <laughs> you know, you committed to this now don't get stuck. Here's different ways that other teams are doing it. There's no one way you have to figure it out for yourself, but don't get stuck. Um, but there's also kind of this person to person network that you need to develop that you can call somebody in and um, ask them, you know, what they did or put their, put your um, problem in front of them and get some feedback from somebody. So I would really suggest getting out there, um, in addition to the kind of reading and stuff that you can absorb, um, it's really culture change. And culture change is, is not fast, it's not easy, um, but it can be, instead of small incremental change, it can be transformative if we can reach a tipping point. And I really hope that we're um, at the point where we've got enough uh, that we could say we really need to change and take some positive steps towards that. I think there's some momentum here, and I, I think that's what the Constructor podcast is all about. Um, we talk about the best way to build it. I mean, that's the tagline, but it really focuses on culture change, and it's exactly what you're talking about. So I'm so happy that you mentioned that. Um, well, talking about building network, well, uh, is there a way that people can get in touch with you and or sure. learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, I'm a, my faculty um, webpage is always really easy to find. So if you just um, look for Renee Chang at University of Minnesota, as long as you're spelling my last name correctly with C-H-E-N-G, not A-N-G, um, the website will come up. And then I keep a pretty active sidebar with links to all my current research or kind of any intermediate stuff that I can release. Um, so that's probably the best way to, to reach me. And, and also, you know, my email is on there if you need to reach me directly. Um, also I, I've been at a lot of conferences lately, so I'm pretty much, um, have been presenting it at most of the major. I've actually been doing a little bit more with the kind of owners groups recently, which has been really fun. So I'll be at COA, um, in St. Louis in May. Uh, and then I'll be at AIA also in, um, April before that in Orlando. So there's different ways for sure to, and I don't always post that kind of stuff on my website. So, but if you scan for some of those, um, it tends to be on these reports or issues of collaboration, issues of integrated project delivery or issues of emerging practices or future type stuff. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you again, Renee. This has been an awesome session talking through your research um, and being able to share that with the listeners here. Um, so thank you so much for your interest. 
Yeah, yeah, and I hope people do take the time to look through the reports. So if you want to hear more about IPD and lean, take a look at the reports first and foremost. Um, the links are in the show notes. You can find them at constructor, that's constructrr.com slash EP29. And you can find them there. Also, you can take a listen to our other podcasts that reference IPT and Lean. Um, one of them of which is How to Develop a Collaborative Culture on Every Project with James Pease. And that is found on episode 22. He was actually one of the participants in the research that Renee conducted. So, again, if you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe at constructor.com. You can get email updates from me about upcoming podcasts and I'm working on some action guides for you because I really do want to make this content actionable for you so you can take and start implementing right away. Um, In addition to that, you can go ahead and subscribe on iTunes or on Stitcher. I look forward to speaking with you guys next week.